Hello, everyone. I'm Mary Schuster, and this is Commitment Matters. Thanks so much for being here. Today, we're going to go nerdy on a topic you might think you know plenty about, but I promise you don't know everything you should. You may think you know E&O, but have you ever sat down with someone who lives exclusively in that world and asked them, so what questions should I be asking that I haven't? Just like with every other kind of insurance policy, E&O policies are not all alike, and there are nuances that might not be obvious to you, even if you've been an insured for years. Don't worry. If you don't know much about E&O coverage, but wonder if you should, today is for you too. We called an expert, Vicki Crow. She's been working in the field of professional liability since 1994 and has extensive knowledge of E&O coverage, most especially as it relates to the title and settlement arena. She provides a scope of services, including underwriting, policy language review, and advice for your coverage and options assessments. Whether you're the sole practitioner of your shop or you're part of a large and complex organization, we had a great conversation about some of the lesser known things that are important to consider when reviewing E&O coverage, like who is covered by what kind of policy, when and how you should handle a potential claim, how the coverage works, when to extend and get a little extra, where the claim trends have been heading, and what might not be covered by a standard policy. You might have been surprised to see this as a subject for an episode, but at Commitment Matters, we want to delve into all aspects of your business to help you stay fresh and current, protected and conversant as things continually evolve in all aspects of our industry. If you thought E&O was a bit of a set it and forget it type thing, you'll probably have at least a couple of notes after today to ask your provider to make sure you're on the right track. We know that our business isn't sitting still and due to conditions on the ground, the world of E&O is changing too. So please enjoy my conversation with Vicki as she guides us through many things that are important to know. Vicki Crow, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Commitment Matters. Thank you for having me. So I was thinking about this this morning, about how our conversation might go. And I was thinking about E&O insurance is something that's, at least the phrase is so ubiquitous. Like everybody knows about you know, then I stopped and went down a couple layers and I thought, well, no, we know the phrase, you know, insurance. We know sort of that it is a product that is relevant in our world and many other worlds. But I realized to define it without using E and O or insurance in the description, I wouldn't be able to do that, which means I really don't have a good understanding of it. We have people from all over the industry that listen to this in, in all roles. We have owners and managers and escrow officers and title examiners and escrow assistants. And I'm sure all of them have at one point said the phrase, you know, insurance, even if they were just being asked for a copy of their deck page or something to include in a closing package. But let's start back sort of at square one for everybody, even though they've very conversant in using that phrase. What the heck exactly is E&O insurance? So E&O insurance is something that is definitely indicative of like the financial aspects of the work world. So it's errors and emissions insurance. And everybody knows they need to have it. And the question is, why do we need to have it? And really, what is it? So you have two types of insurance. You have errors and emissions, and then you have an occurrence coverage. Let's take a step back and say occurrence. Well, what's that? Everybody knows what occurrence is. They're auto insurance. They're homeowner's insurance. They know that if they've got a claim, they can look back to that policy that they had in place when that matter occurred. They had a car accident. They had a tree fall on their house. And that policy is going to cover it for how many every years it takes to fix that matter. Errors and emissions insurance is an anomaly. It's a policy that covers you for your errors and emissions that occur in the services that you render, the professional services that you render. It protects an insured for liability for the work that they do within the services that are defined within the policy. 
The important thing to remember is that these are claims made policies. So in order for coverage to be available, when a claim is made as a policy has to be in force. You don't look back to a policy that was in force when the error may have occurred. And especially in real estate transactions, it could be a year, two years, three years, 10 years down the road when a claim is made. So it's the coverage that you have in place when the claim is made that's going to react to that claim. So it's really important to know that do you have an occurrence policy for errors and emissions or do you have a claims made policy? There really aren't any occurrence policies anymore. There may be one or two carriers in marketplace, which we don't hear about. But really, these are claims made policies for E&O. It's really important to know that. So you've already taught me something new and we're just getting started. If I had an error 10 years ago, we would not go to the policy that I had at that time. We would go to the policy that I have enforced today. Correct. When the claim is made. Okay. So even some residual coverage then might be important in that sort of scenario? It is. So it's important to know that you must renew your policy every year in order for you to have that coverage for work you did 10 years ago. If you were insured 10 years ago when that error occurred and you were just notified of it yesterday or today, if you had a continuous uninterrupted policy, then you would have coverage for that exposure. There is a terminology under an E&O policy. It has several different names. You have prior acts coverage, you have retro coverage. You want to make sure that when you're taking a look at your coverage, if you have a retroactive date or a prior acts date on your policy, that that carries through every year. It's really critical to take a look at that information when you're moving from one carrier to the next to make sure that that information transfers. Because if that information doesn't transfer, you've just gapped your coverage. And if a claim comes in for work you were insured with, but your new carrier doesn't pick up that specific date, you have no coverage. You can report it to your carrier. They'll deny coverage. And if you're going to go back and try to report it to the carrier you had when it occurred, they'll deny coverage as well. And do you see a lot of that or a lot of that potential as people are moving between one carrier and another that they inadvertently can create some of these gaps or holes for themselves? I have seen it in the past. There's a far less carriers in the marketplace where competition lies. So a lot of people and companies stay with the carrier that they're with, but it's a hard market now for E&O insurance. So we're starting to see more and more shopping of coverage. And if you have a broker that's worth their salt, they're going to explain all of that to you. Because I'll tell you, when you first buy your policy or explain what that is, and then you renew every year and you're like, fine, the broker's doing what they need to do. And then you forget about that. You forget about this retro coverage and you forget that you need to make sure that you maintain continuity of coverage. And so if you have a broker that's worth their salt that you're talking to, that can re-explain that to you and make you understand why that's important. Because we also get, well, my premium's high, cut off the prior exposure. Don't want to do that. Not only have you opened up your errors and emissions to yourself, mm -hmm. but your broker shouldn't do that either. Because as a broker, I carry E&O insurance as well. And that opens up my liability. It's not going to cut off premium costs. It just doesn't. So there's really a definite need to know what you're looking at mm -hmm. when you receive a quote and to make sure that you understand what you're reading. So ask as many questions as possible. That's really good advice. Okay. Let's say I have a current existing E&O policy. Who is covered under that? Is it just me? Is it the organization? How does that work? All policies provide coverage for the named insured. And that's that entity name that's on the declarations page, either be entity, individual. So let's talk entity. 
ABC title agency, any officer, director, shareholder, employee of that entity has covered for the work that they do while they were employed, which is critical to know that if somebody leaves your organization, as long as you maintain coverage, their name will also be covered as well. So there will always be coverage for work anybody did while they were employed. Once they leave, the coverage is there. Same thing is true for individuals. If the individual is named insured, they're covered as well. What's not covered under policies is, and it can you can read some policies are adding this in, coverage for spouses. There's some DNO coverage underneath policies that may give coverage for spouses. If there's an outside interest that outside of the title agency or the abstract company, the closing agency, that there's some ownership in, you want to check and make sure if there's coverage there for that. But it really is the employees of the entity, any officer, shareholder, director of the entity that has provided coverage underneath that policy. But anybody that comes on board midterm, check the policy, make sure that there's coverage available, that there's not a reporting requirement, that sort of thing. So depending on the coverage, you may need to let them know who has transitioned into the company or it may just apply at a blanket level. So that's another good thing to look for. Okay. Right. So what all does it cover then? That's a very good question because the critical component of a policy is the definitions of professional services or wrongful act. So open the policy, take apart that policy, take a look and see exactly what it covers. Is your policy a policy that's written for the title industry professional? Does it cover you for work that you do as an abstractor, as a title policy underwriter, as an escrow closing agent? Do you do 123 exchanges? You know, you need to take a look and see exactly what it covers. An ENO policy is going to cover you for the error omission that occurred that is transacted within the definitions that are listed in the policy. And if you open your policy and you're struggling to find where that language lies, again, check with your broker. There's policies out there that are miscellaneous policies. It will state a miscellaneous professional liability policy because professional liability and errors and omissions are synonymous. A miscellaneous professional liability policy that endorses language on to tell you what it's covering. And you really need to take a look at that and make sure that you are being covered for what you're doing. Here's an example. Several years ago, I was taking a look at a policy and a woman that was involved in escrow closings assumed that her policy that she had in place covered her for work she did as a closing agent. She only had a notary policy. So she assumed that what she was covered for was providing her the broad scope of coverage for the work that she did. And she was unaware, so we had to educate her. So it's that kind of nuances that is really important. I would recommend that if anybody is dealing directly with an insurance carrier, at least to even reach out to a broker and ask for advice. Do you see many agencies who have non-industry specific ENO policies and think they're good with that coverage? There has been a lot of carriers in the marketplace that have provided a miscellaneous policy. And when I say that, it's like a Lloyd's of London product, which we all know the Lloyd's of London, we know that name. Mm-hmm. The majority of their policies are written on a miscellaneous form and endorse coverage. Mm-hmm. There's just a couple of specific industry policies that provide coverage for the gambit of what the title industry provides. So if it's not written in plain English, pull it apart, ask a broker, because the couple of policies that are in the industry are in plain English and very easy to follow. That would be a real shame to pay the premiums, think you're covered. And then find out you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For a topic that I thought I knew something about, you are educating the heck out of me today. So thank you. That's great. 
Let's say we have our industry-specific E&O policy. We're good there. But what sorts of things are not covered then in that? So things that aren't covered are bodily injury, property damage, cyber coverage is not necessarily covered underneath an E&O policy. It's important to take a look and see what kind of exclusions are underneath the policy. Some policies exclude coverage for 1031 exchanges. It doesn't cover services provide, performed by a law firm or legal services. It should not be a policy that's written for that aspect of it. If you are a law firm that has a title agency, you want to separate the two coverages. The exposure is too great to either side. So you want to make sure that you've got a separate policy. If you have a standalone title agency and you're also a law firm, we see a lot of these, that you do separate that coverage. Because if you have a claim on your title side, it could cause issues for your E&O for your legal work, your malpractice insurance for your firm. You could get non-renewed. We're seeing large volume claims on the title side. We're seeing you know million dollar payouts these days that could take away from the limits of liability that you share because of those two exposures. Interesting. Well, and I would think that given how busy everybody has been and how sort of out of regular order things have been, I would also imagine that there are some sleeping dog liabilities that are occurring out there that are going to begin to surface over the next however long period of time. And just because everybody's been running fast and going hard and trying to get it all done, right? Exactly. Well, we did see a huge uptick in the 2008-2009 time period where everybody was going into foreclosure or refinancing was being done if they could refinance where we were seeing things that were missed being discovered. So there was a lot of claims during that time period. And we are expecting to see once the foreclosures and forbearances are lifted that we're going to start seeing an uptick in claims again as well. We hope not, but that's what's going to come down the pike here in probably 24 to 48 months. Is that about how long it takes for some of those to begin to cycle? It does. Yeah. And right now we've seen, you know, a ton of refinances. So those are starting to come to light as well. You know, even if people refinance two years ago, a year ago, they're refinancing again because the interest rates are so low. So things are being discovered again. At one point in time, we saw over 100 claims in one year, and now we're seeing 25 to 50 claims in a year. So we're keeping an eye on it and we're trying to see what the trends are. And that's what the policies are in place for, right? Exactly. And the thing is that when we get calls about, oh, I have to report a claim. Well, this is the reason why you buy the coverage. You buy the coverage for the help of the carrier to step in and be there for you so that you can get back to work. That's really what this is coverage is for. Yeah, exactly right. You mentioned reporting a claim. Now, this is a conversation I have had with agents, believe it or not when the right time is to report a claim um, because there are some timing issues that can be very critical. And I think some agents, unfortunately, don't learn the rules of that road until they've done it wrong once. So if you could talk our listeners through how to and when to appropriately do that, that would be really helpful. Oh, I'm so glad you asked this question. It's important that when you have a sniff of a claim, we call it incident reporting, that you report it. Keeping in mind, that depending on the carrier, if you have a frequency issue, it may be an issue with your E&O policy. But if you don't report a claim and you renew your policy and you were aware of a claim before you renewed your policy and then it comes to fruition that you've had a claim filed against you, you actually have suit papers or the title underwriter has said, we're in receipt of a claim, you need to report this to your E&O carrier. You could very well have that claim denied. 
because of failure to notify. Claims made policies, you need to report a claim within the policy period that you become aware of an incident. In order for coverage to react, you want to make sure that your carrier is on board. I can attest to the fact where we have received notices of potential claim. We have claims counsel take a look at the claim and say, it's not the right time to open a claim, but we've been notified. So we preserve the rights of the policy for when the claim comes in. Because all applications that are completed, all carriers ask for a warranty statement when you're binding coverage at renewal. And that warranty statement states, I'm not aware of any claims. I'm not aware of any incidences. And if you sign off on that and you were aware, that's grounds for denial, which makes the insurance industry look bad. But we want to make sure that everybody is aware that if they do not report an incident, let the carrier determine if coverage is going to need to step in right away or we can sit on it and wait. I've seen denial of claims because of not a timely reporting. I mean, even even a couple of days. Right. I think a lot of agents, because of sort of that first caveat of, well, I don't want to over-report. I don't want to make us look willy-nilly. I don't know if this is going to turn into anything or not. We've seen that. Might hold off until, mm-hmm. until they've received a recoupment letter from an underwriter. And then it's probably going to be too late, right? It could very well be too late because part of the stipulations in any E&O policy is that you do not admit liability. You don't accept any kind of statements with regards to paying off any claim or any incident if you want your policy to react. If you do that under your own guise and you handle that matter and let's say it doesn't take care of the situation, what you have done does not take care of the situation and it blows into a full-blown claim, there's a potential denial there because you started taking care of the matter without getting the carrier on board first. If you have a conversation with claims counsel, with the carrier that you're with, and you state, you know what, we don't really think this is going to go anywhere. We think that we can refile or we can send the information back into the courts, whatever needs to be done to rectify this situation. This is what we think we can do. If claims counsel feels that that's the right thing to do, they're going to tell you, proceed and let us know what's going on. Reporting one claim is not going to cause non-renewal. Reporting one claim is not going to cause rates to increase. I imagine people are very relieved to hear you say that because I think there's some trepidation out there. There is If I have to use this, I might not get renewed. Now, of course, stating that depends on what the claim is about, what occurred prior to, all of that. But I can tell you from working on Title E&O for 24 years... If you file an incident report and it's the only one you file or you file a couple, firms have had frequency issues, but they report out of abundance of caution because they had one matter that they didn't report. It got denied because it was past the time they could report. And so now then you get to the point where are we over reporting and you have the conversation. You always want to make sure that you report. You don't want to not report and then run into a situation where you don't have coverage for the $100,000 claim. You're like, oh my gosh, if I had just reported it, I would have been paying my $2,500 deductible. And the thing is, is that in particular, with the carrier that I work with, the claims council has been working in the title industry for well over 30 years, fully versed on what's going on in this industry. So understands the nature of the claims. They get it. Exactly. They can have that conversation with an insured. They can state, open a claim and we're going to sit here and work with the title underwriter with regards to this or the firm or the claimant and see what we can do to mitigate. They don't have to start with defining what a mortgage is. Exactly. Exactly. This is true. That's good. Well, we're seeing a lot of, and I think we're on the front end of it, but we're starting to see a lot of consolidation in the market 
marketplace. We're seeing a lot of acquisitions, whether it's because everything's been so busy for so long that we have some people that just say, I want to sell my agency, I want to get out, or because, you know, the natural business is good. And so consolidation can naturally happen there. Or, oh, there's a new CFPB that's going to be tough back in town. Forget it. I survived the last one. I'm not doing this again. I'm getting out. I want to sell especially with what you mentioned with regard to, you know, coverage periods, what should someone who's looking at selling their agency think about with regard to E&O coverage? Oh, such an important question. We are seeing a lot of mergers and we are seeing two types of mergers, which are the only two I believe that are out there. There's assets only. And then there's the stock purchase where they're purchasing assets and liabilities. And that's the first question we always ask when somebody calls us and say, we're selling, we're in the process of selling, we've just sold. Okay. Is it an assets only purchase? Is it assets and liabilities? If it's an assets only purchase and you are the buyer, you probably want to state to the person that you're purchasing the business from, are you going to purchase an extended reporting period? ERP or the initials, which is what people in the industry call it. It's also called tail coverage or tail insurance, or I want to tail out. So what that does, it's a purchase. It's an endorsement to the policy that's in place when the purchase of that business happens. And it extends the ability for that seller to be able to report claims for services that were rendered during the time period that they had the policy in place. So it goes back to that retroactive date that we talked about earlier that's so important to keep note of and make sure it's on the policy to the date of sale. And so the extended reporting period is then purchased for a period of time, one year, two years, three years, five years, and then you can report a claim for that period of time that you purchase the tail coverage for. Okay. So let's say I'm an owner today. I'm wanting to get out-ish, but I'm not wanting to get entirely out. So I negotiate a sale. We've got the purchasing entity. And let's say as part of the deal, I'm going to stay on for a year and do some work on as an employee or contractor or, or whatever that looks like. I would want to be sure I'm covered under the new owner's existing policy for sort of that new business. And then I want to look at this ERP coverage for what I had when I owned the business in that time period. So kind of two different facets there. Is that right? Yep. That is exactly correct. So you buy the ERP endorsement on the policy for your prior ownership, and then the new owner would start a policy brand new. Prior act date, the retroactive date would be the date of the purchase. And so they're going to be covered for everything going forward. They've cut off their liability for all the exposure that was done prior to the sale. The other side of this is you have assets and liabilities purchase where you have sold stock sale of everything. So keeping in mind, if you are the buyer on that and you are purchasing purchasing assets and liabilities, and you're continuing with that e policy that's in place, you're picking up all of that prior exposure that you may not know what's coming down the pipe. But you've stated that you're going to do that. So when you do that, you want to take a look at the policy, see how far back that retro date is, make sure that as you continue to renew, make sure that the carrier knows that you've purchased the assets and liabilities so they can transfer the name. All of this need to notify your carrier regardless of what's happening. Even if it's after the fact, you know, oh, we've just sold. We get those calls all the time. We've just sold or we're selling in five days or I need this done yesterday, tomorrow. Your carrier should be able to react to that. But it's really important to know that you do have options here when you're selling your business. What we are seeing is agencies selling their business and it's an assets only purchase and there's not an extended reporting period purchase for the prior exposure. Those are the kinds of things that make me not sleep at night to know that there is potential exposure that's out there. You just don't know what's going to come down the road in two years, three years from now. With these policies, there is an 
end period with these extended reporting periods. Depends on the carrier and you need to ask the questions. How far, how much can I purchase? We haven't seen much requirement with regards to needing to buy the ERP from title underwriters. I do know that the Oklahoma Abstract Board has been telling our insureds and other Oklahoma abstractors that they must carry two years at a minimum. So we're starting to see more and more requests. I would probably say about 25% of the requests or out of 100 entities that request it, we may get 25 purchases. So only 25% of the population are purchasing this coverage. Well, and you hope they have the deal structure to where it's not an issue, but it seems to me if you want to get out of the business, you might as well be able to get all the way out and not worry about sort of those dangling liabilities surfacing well after you've just trying to go have a life somewhere. Exactly. Here's another aspect of that. I want to chat about really briefly, what happens if you decide to close your doors as an individual or an organization and decide not to sell your business and not purchase an extended reporting period? Your policy will expire naturally or unless you request cancellation. And then it's as if you've never had coverage in place. You can't report anything to anybody at any point in time. So it's really important to know that if you are deciding to retire or you're done or you've had your own business and you are now working for a title underwriter or title agency and you believe that you have no exposure, keep in mind that if you do have exposure six months down the road and you try to report a claim on an expired policy, you will have no coverage. This is because coverage is not in place. It's the coverage and the carrier you have when the claim is made that will react to that claim. All this obviously is very good practical tips for owners, but I think also for managers and production level closers and title folks to understand that your company's having to deal with all this and knowing, I think, some of the ins and outs of how the company protection works. Let's say you decide to stop being a closer because you want your end of the months back and you want to go have a life too. These are things that you need to understand what residual you individually do or don't have by virtue of that company having its policy in place. Correct. So one of the definitions underneath the policy provides coverage for any prior employee, prior director, owner. So know and feel comfortable that as long as there's a policy that's in place at your employer uh, that you will have coverage for when you walk out the door. I had a call last week from a woman who was leaving her title agency and she wanted to make sure that she had coverage for the work that she did on behalf of the entity. Another thing is if you are an individual and you want to ask the question, ask the question of your human resources department, whoever takes care of the ENO policy, make sure that you've got coverage for one thing and that once you leave, they maintain a policy in place to cover you. Another thing to keep in mind is that if you're a 1099 or independent contractor, you want to make sure that you're covered as well because some policies don't cover independent contractors. Uh, They specifically exclude that exposure. So if you are an, an independent contractor, please ask the questions. Ask to see a copy of the policy. Ask to know that you have coverage in place. Yes. Or if you're an agent who employs 1099, those type of workers. Yeah. If you are an agency that has independent contractors, my recommendation wholeheartedly is also to ask for a copy of their certificate of insurance. Now your policy will cover you for work they do on behalf of your entity name. So if they're transacting business underneath your entity, your policy is going to cover them. But if they're transacting business out there for you on behalf of their name, you want to make sure they've got coverage in place. That is such a good pro tip, Vicki. That's a really good pro tip. 
I've got to talk to the closers here because here's how I found out that E&O coverage existed. I was a pretty new closer. This has been years ago. And all of a sudden I get served. I'm listed individually as well as my company, the bank, the underwriter, the whole world, right? Because that's what a good plaintiff's attorney does. Mm -hmm. And now I have to come in and clear my name with the rest of the story of the contention was there was something on the survey of the property that in hindsight, actually immediately after the closing, that was suspicious, but that's okay the borrower wasn't thrilled with. And the argument was that we didn't want him to be aware of this because if he was aware of it, he wouldn't have purchased the home. Well, he had signed and initialed the survey, so it didn't go very far. But I'll tell you what, as an employee, especially someone in their 20-somethings, to be named in a lawsuit individually, that'll get your attention right quick. And that's why they do it, by the way, is to get your attention. I didn't have 15 cents to rub together. That wasn't the point. The point was to get my attention and try to get something moving somewhere on that. I just tell that anecdote, just if you think you're a closer, that this is all sort of not pertaining to you, it can be brought right to your attention quite, quite quickly. I just saw suit papers yesterday for an abstracting company that we ensure that it named every individual in that abstracting company. So you're absolutely right. They will name everybody because somebody has a deep pocket somewhere. Somewhere. Exactly. We'll keep looking until we find it. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Since we're in the legal realm now, let's talk about attorney's fees, cost of defense. Do those tend to be covered in the policy or how does that work? They are. So these policies have what's called claims expenses inside the limits of liability is what these limits are. So it's an eroding limit of liability. Any attorney's fees will start to erode away at an available limit of liability before judgment is paid. So that's really important to think about when you're thinking about what your exposure is and what limits of liability you want to carry. For example, if you're an abstractor and you perform services and you feel that you need to carry $250,000 worth of coverage. Okay. Which is where we we saw that coverage being purchased years ago. So we start having conversations. Okay, you may not have liability here, but it may take a while for you to go through defense costs and you may start to road away that limit of liability. Let's say your responsibility is $200,000 and it costs you $60,000 to defend you in that matter. Do you have enough coverage? Then you have eroded away your limits of liability for the entire policy period. You get another claim, you have no coverage because you've eliminated your coverage that you have in place. So they are covered, but they will erode the limit of liability away. So keep that in mind when you're talking about what kind of limits do I want to carry? We don't see a requirement in the abstracting realm for coverage yet. We do see some people stating, well, I need to carry 500,000 because of a title underwriter I'm doing searches for. We do know that all of our title underwriters require a million dollars worth of coverage at a minimum. There's one that's $500,000 is plenty for them. We definitely don't recommend 500,000. We'll quote it, but we also state you're going to need a million. So you might as well carry that limit of liability. But yes, defense costs are included. Judgments are included within that coverage. Again, it's eroding limit of liability. Okay. So oftentimes I guess it would make more economic sense to have the attorney's cost covered. And if that works out right, then you have (laughs) less of a payout to make if that lawyering goes well. But if you're facing something large, let me ask this, and maybe this question is off base. If I sort of wait, say I'm going to pay my attorney costs out of pocket, I'm going to see what happens in this, and then it comes in under my limit. Is that something I can go back and sort of retro? 
retroactively apply to the attorney's costs or do I have to sort of decide up front if I want to allocate things for the amounts for the attorney's fees to be paid or not? So you're going to pay your deductible. Claims brought against you, you're going to pay your deductible, whatever that is. So that starts to pay the attorney's fees. The recommendation is to allow the carrier and the and the attorney that is hired for you to manage that for you. And then let's say that the bill comes in and it's all attorney's fees, but you want to preserve your limits of liability. You can have that discussion with claims counsel and your carrier. Very rarely do we ever see that occur. Most people just want to pay their deductible because there's not really a situation where we see more than two claims reported in a policy period. We've seen a few full limits claims, but most of them are well within the limits of liability. So let's just pay our deductible and we'll be fine with that. So unless you're having a really bad hair year. Yes. It should be okay. Exactly. Okay. We love our war stories here at the pod. So I would like for you to regale us with some tales of the types of things that you tend to see commonly. And also, I'd like to hear some of the oddball things that you've seen that people might not be thinking about. So I'm just going to hand this off to you and war story me away because I love these. One recently that I just was reading about had to do with a dam on a property that the claimant claims was not disclosed. And so our insured was brought into it. And it's interesting if you keep reading all the way through the claim suit page, There is no liability on our insured side, but like you had stated, they sued everybody. So we're going to have to defend our client against that. And recently we have seen where closing fees don't go to the person that they're supposed to go to, don't go to the seller. When we had a large payout, the monies were supposed to be directed somewhere and they went back to the seller and the seller thought they had found money. You know, we're holding on to those funds. And the difficulty with that is then we have to litigate and we call that back. There is clear error on our insurance part and the insurance carrier is paying the coverage for that. We were able to segregate and get those funds back. We were able to convince the seller that they didn't just get a magic windfall. Exactly. You know, and that can take a while. And see, here's the other side of that too, is that Again, you want the carrier involved to help you with that so you don't have to deal with that. You don't have to deal with everything that goes on, the nuances, the discussions that need to happen. This is two years in the making for this matter to three years for this matter to completely come to fruition. I always state that if you feel that, why am I, why do I need to buy this insurance? You buy the insurance for peace of mind. You buy the insurance to have experts behind you supporting you if your world suddenly falls apart because a claim occurred. There's just so many claims that are kind of boring, you know, everyday run-of-the-mill claims that we see. The ones that I find the most interesting are the wire fraud claims because it's just human error that causes those to occur. And I just feel so bad. The first claim that we ever saw was 2017. It was immediately $180,000 that we ended up having to pay because it was a clear invoice manipulation that occurred on a Friday night and it wasn't discovered until like the following Wednesday when the claimant stated, where are my funds? Didn't get them and uh, they couldn't pull it back. This was, you know, 2017, 2018 where banks were like, we're not going to do anything. Well, they're really not doing anything much now. That's really where we're seeing a lot of the scary claims is from wire fraud. I would imagine that it's frustrating for people because they have trained their staff. They might even put them through quarterly videos or, you know, they talk, 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 and the employees say yes, yes, yes. And the employee 99 times out of 100 is super vigilant. And then one day there was just a super exigent because everything's a rush always, but there was a super, super, super rush and the world was going to end. And they step back from their policies and procedures that they know. And boom, that's when it happens. And I bet those are the hardest ones for those claimants. 
confidence to say, yep, you know what? I knew and I did it anyway because I was just trying to facilitate someone and call it good customer service. And there it is. Those have to be really frustrating for not only those employees, but that staff member. Absolutely. Alta does a great job of education. Everybody is learning what they need to do. It's three or four years and we've been talking about this. It really comes down to the simple fact of pick up the phone. You know, you can sit there and say, I hovered on the email address and it looked legitimate and I didn't notice that the L was an I and it really looked legitimate. Personally, I received an email and I received four or five of them from my boss stating, hey, Vicki, I need your help. I need you to go buy me gift cards. You know, and I'm like, huh, he would never ask me to do that. So if it just seems out of the norm, you know, pick up the phone and ask the question. Send the email if you have an IT department, send the email to the IT department and say, this looks fishy. If you just take the five minutes, everybody will be very happy that you took the five minutes to pick up the phone and call. I know that when I send out wiring instructions, if I have somebody ask for wiring instructions to pay their premium, I send them in a separate email and I always state, please call me to make sure that this information is valid because I also sell cyber liability insurance and I know what can happen. And they're always very appreciative of that. It may seem inconvenient. And believe me, three or four years ago, we said, this is such an inconvenience. Why do I have to keep doing this? I know Susie down the street. We deal with them all the time. I don't have any issues. This is a client we've had for a long time. They will be appreciative of it too. They absolutely will. And certainly much less scale, but often when I'm out using my credit card, as I am wont to do, because I like to shop, once in a while, I'll get asked for my driver's license and they're apologetic about it. I'm so sorry. Don't be sorry. I always thank them. It's so funny that in our industry, we think, oh, if we take that extra five minutes, the world's going to end. People are going to be upset. Absolutely. Tires in the U-Haul are going to go flat, whatever it is we think. But yet when it's someone taking that extra step to protect us, we are appreciative. We are grateful. And then with the size of the transaction just made exponentially larger, I don't think we have to fear the wrath of a consumer for us to take an extra two, three, five minutes to protect them. I think that's some old thinking that we've really got to step up. I agree with you. Two years ago, there was a story here in the D.C. area about a title agency who, closing agency who had wired $1.2 to a hacker for this young couple's dream home that their family had given them the money for. They were paying cash and I was devastated for them. I'm like, how do you recoup that? The agency can't recoup that. The agency is no longer in business. If you just take the time, because these kinds of things can kill your business. It's critical that we, as an industry, I know that we are all working on it. Alt is doing a great job of working on it. The advocacy that is being done and trying to make change occur, it's happening everywhere. And if there's one hacker or bad actor that we call in the cyber world that leaves the market, there's 10 right behind it. Yeah, we're sitting ducks with as quickly as we move by necessity and as much money as we move. And then there are famous sort of places to hack in the transaction. We won't necessarily say the Realtor's Gmail account, but oftentimes it's a Realtor's Gmail account. That we just have to do this. And then, as I said, from an employee standpoint, you know, that story I told about the problem survey, that's when I learned about E&O insurance. And I was so glad it was in place. And so I encourage employees to understand, even if they're not the ones making the decisions or paying the premiums on these policies, because, you know, an aspect of that is while this case was pending, I, for example, went and bought a car. And when I did a loan application, one of the questions was, are you named as a defendant on any litigation, criminal or civil? I had to say yes. 
And then I had to go explain, oh, it's a professional, but I had to be conversant because otherwise I would have come full stop at that question on a car loan app and thought, Mm -hmm. oh, what do I do here? And what do I tell these people to think about this? Such a critical benefit, even if you're not down in the machinations of what exactly is your coverage, who exactly are you getting it from, what are your premium periods running and all that. I think it's just wonderful. So a couple of questions. If we can do yes, no, if we can do lightning round, great. If we can't, that's okay too. Do most policies cover cyber breaches? No. How about CFPB violations? No. To take you back to really quickly, so the no for the cyber and the no for the CFPB, they're endorsed on policies if they're provided. You need to check and make sure that they are. The miscellaneous policies tend not to have these coverages added. Okay. We're just adding to people's checklists. This is really good. How about remote online notarizations? Because we can't go one episode here at the podcast right now without talking about remote online notices because everything's changing. So tell, tell us about that if you would. So the answer to that is also no. And the reason why that is in place is because some of these policies are old. When I say old, they are written, you know, 2015, 2016. If there's not an endorsement that provides Ron, policies provide coverage for work done as a notary, for one thing. It will state in the physical presence is the words that you need to take a look at. Does it provide coverage as a notary as long as there's physical presence? I know for a fact that last year, March 20th of last year, I sat down with our claims counsel for TIAC and was like, what are we going to do with regards to this exposure? The industry now has to change. What are we going to do? There are legal ramifications here that we need to keep an eye out on. We do know that there's been laws that are passed in a lot of states and particularly Virginia, where a lot of this kicked off from, which is where I live. What are we going to do to make sure that we have this cover sets in place? So with TIAC, we had the provisions in place for a couple of years to provide coverage because we were asked by a client, can you provide this coverage for us? And then a couple of carriers came around and said, you know, we do know that we need to provide coverage for this exposure. So the question is, how much is covered? What is covered? So you need to look for the remote online notarization endorsement that's added or it's broad endorsement. If you don't find an endorsement, do not expect there to be coverage. There is something out there that's called silent coverage underneath these policies. If it's not stated or it's not excluded and a claim comes in, the carrier will have to react to that claim. Me personally, I don't want to rely on that. And hope that works out okay. Hope that works out great for you because it may or may not. (laughs) Explicitly stated coverage would be much better. Well, it sounds like everybody would benefit from just a nice, fresh eyes audit on what their coverage is, what it might need to become very quickly or in the near future and just ask for a lot of these things that maybe people didn't know to ask about. One of the things we like to do here is give people a Rolodex of professionals to help them chart some of these issues so everybody doesn't have to become an expert in everything. So I'm guessing you welcome helping people with those audits. Oh, absolutely. I am an insurance geek. Not a lot of people want to talk to me about insurance. (laughs) would be happy to. And I do this on a daily basis as I pull policies apart and I take a look at what people have and I do a comparison. I underwrite for TIAC. If TIAC is not the right fit for you, I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to say, you've got a great policy with XYZ. And here's why you have a great policy with XYZ. Here's what TIAC can offer you. What does this come down to? Is it a premium issue? Do you like your claims counsel? I see that you've had claims. Are you happy with them? You may want to stay with them. It's not unlike me to sit there and say that to somebody that you're with a good carrier. Would I like you to come and take a look at what I have to offer? Absolutely. 
but I will pull apart a policy for anybody to take a look and tell them you need to bolster this policy or this is a great policy. That's a good service because obviously just by this brief conversation, such a myriad of things to know and understand. And a lot of times if you haven't had that good counsel along the way, then there's only a gotcha retrospectively and it's obviously too late then. So that's fantastic that you do that for people. Is there anything else that should be on people's lists of things to check on, think about, ask about that we didn't cover yet? There's nothing coming down the pike with regards to exposures. Just keep abreast of the fact that you've got a policy in place. You need to renew it on time. You need to renew it before its renewal date so that you don't experience potential gap in coverage. And know that the market is getting harder. So if you are up for renewal and you're seeing like a 10% increase in premium, that's absolutely good because we're seeing anywhere from 20 to 30% increase in premium because of the catastrophic nature of the PNC world. So just keep that in mind. It is still worth an opportunity for you to shop and see if there's coverage out there that can provide you with the same coverage, but maybe a little bit less expensive because we are seeing carriers also leave this particular marketplace. We've seen two in the last month. Oh my. There is capacity out there for you. Don't think that if your carrier is one of those carriers that is leaving the marketplace that you are in a world of trouble. Reach out. I'd be happy to talk to you. And general business E&O coverage isn't going to cut it, right? Not at all. We need specific to title and settlement industry. Exactly. You want to take a look at it. You want to pull it apart or have a broker experienced in the title industry do that for you. Please don't rely on your broker that provides you with your commercial coverage, your workers comp. They may not be versed in errors and emissions insurance, and in particular with regards to this industry. They may have great intentions, but you might be leaving yourself inadvertently exposed. Very well, maybe. Vicki, this has been wonderful. Thank you so, so much. Thanks, Vicki, for your valuable guidance on these matters. As she said, she's very willing to help you review your coverage to help you know if you're well covered or if you might need to make some tweaks. Even if this isn't on your short-term to-do list, I bet it will come up at some point and I encourage you to reach out to Vicki. Her email is linked in the show notes and she would love to hear from you. Until next time, keep those errors or emissions low. I know you will. Remember that grace doesn't cost a thing, even when you're super busy and stressed and even when everyone else in the transaction is acting like an idiot. And of course, always remember that what you do really matters.